0: I was talking to Jim Jordan earlier. He's asking me, like, are there going to be any Superman references in today's sermon? No, there will not be any Superman references, no Lord of the Rings, no Marvel. So I'm sorry to disappoint you all. It's just going to be a, a straight, regular sermon. Actually, my inspiration for today's sermon came from a recent video that I watched of Ellen, the talk show host, and she was being interviewed by David Letterman. And in that video, she's opening up about her relationship with her mother. See, when Ellen was a teenager, she was abused by her stepfather. And when Ellen eventually got the courage to tell her mom what had happened, her mom didn't believe her and then stayed married to this man for another 18 years. Eventually... Thankfully, Ellen's mother did figure out what had really happened, and left him, and then later apologized to Ellen for not believing her. Ellen forgave her mother, and their relationship was mended. And after I watched the video, I read some of the comments that other viewers had left, and most of the comments said things like, you know, it's a wonderful story of forgiveness, and it was very uh, courageous of what Ellen did, you know, to do that. But there were a lot of comments that said, I could never forgive my mother if she did that to me. And as I read that, I thought, we see that a lot these days. Personally, I've seen many people who have this attitude of, I'll give you one shot, and if you do something or say something that I don't like, then you're dead to me. And I think this is perfectly exemplified in today's cancel culture. And if if you're not aware of this term of what cancel culture is, basically, if you're a celebrity or a politician or maybe a business owner or just a business entity, if you do or say something that this angry mob does not like, then they want to destroy you. If you're an employee, they want you fired. If it's a business, they want you shut down. So it doesn't matter... How much good you've done in the past, if you do something wrong, then it's over. And as you can see from today's sermon title, today's sermon is on grace. And if you read newspapers or if you watch the news lately, you'll hear a phrase that's used often, which is, we are divided. Our nation is divided. People are growing further apart. Growing up, we're told to solve our differences by talking to one another, by working together. But that has been replaced with a cut-them-out-of-your-life mentality. If somebody hurt you, cut them out of your life. As I thought about this, I actually think that it goes deeper than simply not wanting to forgive someone. I think we've lost sight of the concept of grace. Should we only show grace to those that deserve it? Who who deserves grace in the first place? Does grace just mean forgiveness? Or does it mean something more? Today we're going to look at what grace means, how we can show it, who deserves it, and why we need it. So if you would please open up your Bibles or your Bible apps and turn or scroll the book of Matthew, I'll be reading from chapter 18, starting at verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how many times could my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus said to him, but seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he had no way to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the slave fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me. And I will pay you everything. Then the master of the slave had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, Pay what you owe. At this, his fellow slave fell face down and began begging him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. On the contrary, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. And when the other slaves saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then, after he had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And his master got angry and handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So, my Heavenly Father, we also due to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for each day that you give to us. We thank you for being rich in mercy, and pouring out your grace on us in abundance. I pray that we would reflect your grace to others, and to show them the love that you have shown to us. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Now, I've grown up in the church my whole life, and I've probably read this story several hundred times. And each time I read it, I thought, this is a really good story about forgiveness, But I've come to realize that it's actually more than that. Jesus is telling us a story of God's grace. And as I studied for today's sermon, I kept finding writers who talk about grace and say that it is arguably the most important aspect of Christianity. And if that's true, then we should probably take some time to appreciate it and learn more about what it means. The Apostle Paul opens up all of his letters with grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our savior. In 1st and 2nd Timothy, Paul actually shakes things up just a little bit and opens up with grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. In Greek, the word grace is chares, which has the root chairo, and I apologize if I'm totally wrecking those pronunciations. <laughs> But that means to rejoice exceedingly, to be well, and to be glad. However, chares is used to express goodwill, loving kindness, and favor. But most often, and most importantly, it is used to mean kindness which bestows upon one what he has not deserved. In other words, grace is receiving what we don't deserve. In fact, it's been said that if grace means getting what we don't deserve, then mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Now, spoiler alert, we're all sinners. We know this, right? For just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if the wages of sin is death, and we're all sinners, then that is what we deserve. Now, that seems very basic, I know, to Christianity, but this does help us to answer one of our questions from earlier, which is, who deserves grace? Do you deserve grace? I don't deserve grace. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. This is what Jesus was illustrating in the parable of the unforgiving servants. The first servant owed his master 10,000 talents, and the second one owed 100 denarii. Now, have you ever wondered what the difference is between talents and denarii? Because they don't, I mean, obviously, there's two different things, right? When I was a kid growing up and I'd read this story, I didn't think about it too much because 10,000 is obviously a lot more than 100, and that's all that really matters, right? But what I learned was is that a talent is actually a unit of measurement for gold and silver. So 10,000 talents is actually estimated to be uh, worth around 204 metric tons of silver, which would have an approximate value of 60 million denarii. So it's 60 million versus 100. Now, you may have thought that was bad before, but that's really bad, right? That kind of puts this whole thing into kind of a new light. You may have said, this guy surely does owe a lot of money, but maybe he could have paid 10,000 back. No, he could not have paid it back. It was way too much debt. Interestingly, though, what did the first servant say to his master? He said, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. Really? Do you really know how much you owe? So I don't think he really understood or appreciated just how much he owed. There was no way that he could have paid it back. But that's us. We are that servant. We can never repay our debts. The only thing that we can hope for is grace and mercy. Now Paul knows a thing or two about grace and mercy. In fact, God showed Paul grace even when he wasn't looking for it. If you read Paul's testimony in Acts chapter 22, Jesus stops him on the road, blinds him, then gives him instructions to go to Damascus. And after Paul regains his sight, he's told that he will, witness for the Lord, he will be a witness for the Lord and that his sins will be washed away by calling on the Lord's name. Now, Jesus could have just struck Paul down on the road, and that would have been the end of it. Because if anyone deserved death, it was Paul. But Jesus doesn't give him what he deserves. Instead, he revealed his grace to Paul. And this is what defined Paul's identity. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by God's grace, I am what I am. And His grace towards me was not ineffective. However, I worked more than any of them, yet not I, but God's grace that was with me. Therefore, whether it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you proclaim have believed. Our identity is defined by God's grace. As Paul says, by God's grace, I am what I am. Now, if you've ever owed a large sum of money, you may know what that feels like to have that weight on you. If you ever owed a family member or a friend some money, it's even worse Because you actually like that person who lent you the money, right? It's not just some nameless or faceless bank. Now, can you imagine owing that family member so much money that there is no way that you could ever pay it back? But instead of them holding it against you and making you repay it for the rest of your life, they just forgave you that debt? How might your attitude change? How might your perspective change? How would you now view that family member? Everything would change, right? You'd be in the best mood. You had a debt that you could never repay. And now you're no longer responsible or under this debt. You received a gift that you didn't deserve. You had a debt that you could never repay and God's grace should shape and define who we are as a result. God's grace has the power to transform us. Throughout scripture, God is revealed as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. But have you ever wondered why? Why these three men? Why these three men, when God has revealed himself to so many other people, and he's used so many other people throughout history, why these three men? Why not the God of Adam, the God of Moses, or the God of Bildad the Shuhite? By the way, did you know that Bildad the Shuhite is the shortest man in the Bible? Think about it. Shuhite. I'm sorry. (laughs) So, why the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, one answer is that God's faithfulness is everlasting and that it spans from one generation to another. It also conveys that, God, that our God is a God that keeps his promises and keeps his covenants. But that would actually just be scratching the surface because God did not just reveal himself to the world through these men for their accomplishments. But also because of their flaws. God is pointing us not just to their eventual fate, but to the transformation of these men. This process involves two things their failures and God's faithfulness. This is the grace of God in the flaws of men. God is telling the world that He is a God of transformation. He wants the world to see these men with all their flaws so that we can see the transformation in them. Because when sin reigns darkest, grace shines brightest. In Romans chapter 5, verse 18, it says, So then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is life-giving justification for everyone." For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord." Now here, Paul is saying that grace multiplies. But how? How does grace multiply? Does it do it on its own? Well, grace multiplies in a few ways. First, through the knowledge of God. 2 Peter says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So, the more you know of God, The more familiar you are with his promises, the more your thinking is shaped and saturated by the words of the Lord, and the more in grace and peace will be multiplied to you. This is just another part of the transformation that takes place in and through God's grace. Now, how many of you have traveled overseas? A lot of you, right? How many of you have traveled to the East Coast? Yeah, even more. Wow. So have you ever noticed that the longer you stay in a place, the more likely you are to start to become more like the people there? You'll start using their phrases, their words, things that are just kind of special to that location. And if you, even, if you stay in a place even long enough, maybe you'll start to dress more like those people. You might even pick up an accent, depending on where you are. My oldest brother, David, moved his family to Texas about six years ago. And despite growing up in California his whole life, living in Los Angeles for at least 10 years, as soon as he moved to Texas, he bought himself a Ford truck, which he had never done before, got some cowboy boots, he got a cowboy hat, and he's got a Texas belt buckle as well. And every now and then, he says, y'all. And as strange as it is for me to see my brother transform into a Texan, I know that it's only natural. We adapt to the surroundings, or to our surroundings. We become more like the people that we spend the most time with. So if you want to become more like Jesus, who is rich in mercy and grace, you need to spend more time with him. The more you know of God, the more familiar you are with His promises, the more your thinking is shaped by His words, and the more grace and peace will be multiplied to you. The second way that grace is multiplied is through you. Grace is not just something that God gives us. we are told to show grace to others. In First Peter chapter four it says based on the gift each one has received, use it to serve others as good managers of the varied grace of God. Now, did you realize that, that we are managers of God's grace? You know, we hear a lot like, oh, we're supposed to, we're supposed to manage the earth, right? God has given us the earth to manage. Your translation might say steward of God's grace. The word that Peter is using here means... Someone who, the head of the house or proprietor, has entrusted the management of his affairs. It's like if God owned a Wendy's restaurant and he made you in charge of it. He's trusting you to run it well. God has made us stewards of his grace. But how do we do that? By using the gifts that God has given to us. In other words, when we serve others, it's not just about what we're doing for others. It's not about the act of serving, but rather it's about showing God to others. By using our gifts, we are demonstrating God's grace. Now, just briefly, let's recall what grace means. It means receiving that which you do not deserve. So this is usually the point in the sermon where potentially, potentially, things could get a little uncomfortable. Because we like the idea of receiving grace, right? Because we know that we need it. But what about showing grace to others? Particularly people that we feel don't deserve it. Now you don't have to raise your hands for this next question. But do you have someone in your life who has hurt you deeply. Maybe it was something that they said. Perhaps they questioned your integrity. Maybe they called you a liar. Maybe they accused you of stealing or blamed you for something that you didn't do. Maybe they stole from you. Maybe they lied to you or spread gossip about you. Or maybe they hurt you indirectly. Maybe they hurt somebody that you love, your husband, your wife. Your sister, brother, or your children. Now, will this person ever apologize to you? Maybe. Probably not. Right? Why can't every situation be more like the unforgiving servant? Because at least in this case, he fell face down and asked for patience so that he could repay his debts. But what about the person who hurt you? They aren't asking for patience. They aren't asking for forgiveness. They aren't asking for mercy or for grace. So why should you give it to them? Sometimes, as Christians, we kind of fall into this middle ground when it comes to grace. Do you know what I mean? We we tell ourselves that we don't hate this person because Christians aren't supposed to hate people. Right? But then it kind of just stops there. Or we say to ourselves that, I'll behave myself as long as they behave themselves. How many times have we heard that? It's especially hard when it's family. Now personally, I know family members who have not spoken to each other in over 10 years. Because each person feels that the other person hurt them and betrayed them. And at least one of these people have said that they can never forgive the other person because of what they did. And we might say things like that when we've been hurt deeply by someone, And in cases like that, we feel like there's nothing that they could say or do to make up for for what they did. It's almost as if they owed a debt so large that they could never repay it. It's almost like they owed 10,000 talents. But Jesus said that you are the one in debt. You are the servant that owes the 10,000 talents. Each of us has hurt and betrayed God. Each of us owed a debt that we could not repay. But God didn't give us what we deserved. Instead, he gave us what we didn't deserve, and he forgave us. So why should we show grace to the people in our lives that have hurt us, that we feel don't deserve it? Because you have been shown that grace, and you didn't deserve it. This leads us to the ultimate display of grace, which is the grace that Jesus showed us on the cross. Jesus actually went above and beyond just wiping the slate clean. Because it's one thing to erase the debts, it's another thing to pay the debts entirely. Because when it came to paying the price, for our sins. The debt had to be paid. We couldn't declare bankruptcy. We can't let it just go to collections. Someone had to pay it. And guess what? The payment that's required is your life. But just like the unforgiving servant, he owed a debt that he could not repay. You know, thinking about it, Even our life wouldn't be enough, though, right? Even if we gave our life, it still wouldn't be enough to repay that debt. But when sin reigns darkest, grace shines brightest. God knew that we could never repay this debt, and so he did it himself. So if you ever wonder what separates Christianity from all other faiths, it is this and this makes all the difference in the world. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7 says, I was made a servant of the gospel by earning God's grace. It actually doesn't say that, does it? No. It says, I was made a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of His power. If God can show us grace when we owed him so much, shouldn't we show grace to others when they owe us so little by comparison? The last thing that must be mentioned about God's grace is that it is sufficient. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says that he asked the Lord three times to take the thorn in his flesh away from him. As a side note, a lot of scholars believe that this thorn in the flesh was some type of chronic illness, perhaps, that Paul had. So here, Paul writes, and he's speaking of the Lord, he says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness." Therefore, I most gladly, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, catastrophes, persecutions, and in pressures because of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God's grace is sufficient. But what do we mean by sufficient? A modern reader could see the word sufficient and think that it implies that it'll get the job done, but you could use some more, right? Another word that we could use to describe that would be adequate. But is that what God means? Is God's grace just adequate? No. If you look at the word sufficient and how it's used in the Bible, it means to be possessed of unfailing strength. To be strong, to defend, and to be satisfied. Now, can you imagine having the mindset of Paul that he's writing about here? Do you take pleasure in your weaknesses? No. In fact, it's pretty common for us to identify our weaknesses and then we work to eliminate them, right? That's the American way. Do you take pleasure in catastrophes or persecutions? Yay, this terrible thing happened to me. Whee! No. I know. My life was going so great, but thankfully this catastrophe came just at the right time. We don't do that. So why does Paul gladly boast about his weaknesses? So that Christ's power may reside in me. Paul said that he asked the Lord three times to take the thorn from his flesh. Now this actually mirrors the time when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. There, Jesus was the one asking his father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And Jesus did this three times. And now, Paul is asking Jesus for strength. And what is Jesus' response? My grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. This is why we all need grace. John Piper explains it like this. He says, God's purpose in our weaknesses is to glorify the grace and power of his Son. This is the main point of verses 9 and 10. Jesus says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God's design is to make you a showcase for Jesus' power, not by getting rid of your weaknesses, but by giving you strength to endure and even rejoice in tribulation. God pours out his grace on us, and we in turn show grace to others. And then by doing so, we are glorifying God. Grace has the power to transform us. Grace defines who we are. Grace multiplies in the knowledge of God. And his grace is sufficient and glorifies him. God has given us grace even though we did not deserve it. So may we also show grace to others as Christ has done for us, for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your endless mercy and grace. I know that I personally struggle sometimes with showing grace to others that have hurt me in the past. I pray that you would help each of us to see the people in our lives the way that you see us. Help us to be rich in peace, rich in mercy and love and in grace. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.